You're listening to the North Canton Chapel Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, welcome to the first week of Advent. December like starts on Friday. Christmas is 29 days away. Hopefully everybody had a good Thanksgiving. I managed to get myself a little, a little sick, so I got a little head thing going on, so be gracious to me. It's working through it. I talked to Bill here this morning about his Thanksgiving, and Bill had a great one-liner. He goes, this old turkey got stuffed. I'm like, that's awesome. Way to go. So as you're thinking about uh, Christmas and what around, what's right around the corner, I do want to just kind of direct your attention to grab one of these, maybe on your way out today if you haven't already, uh, Stories and Reflections. Uh, for the season of Advent. We've created these. A lot of us have contributed to it. I actually threw a cookie recipe in here. So you just want it, to... It, it's not... Yeah. It barely made it. Anyway. So get one of those on your way out today. It's a great way to kind of guide your thoughts this Christmas season. Christmas is the season of perpetual hope, right? right. And we are hardwired for it. It seems that way. Hope is this brave thing that pushes back against the darkness. Hope is the flower fighting to find a crack in the pavement to say, yeah, it's going to happen. Hope's not just a wish. We know that. Hope for Christians is a confident expectation. Hope is not just optimism. It is grounded in reality. Hope is something that we need. I've heard people say that hope is like oxygen for the soul. Great idea. From time to time, you guys know I like to sometimes find a picture or a painting or maybe a photograph that kind of typifies what we're going after. And so this morning, I want to show you this one. This is from 2006. It's from a street artist in London called Banksy. Maybe you've heard of him. He's an anonymous artist. No one really knows who he is. And uh, he painted this stencil. No one knows exactly when he snuck in there and did it. He painted it under the Waterloo Bridge in downtown London. And it's called Girl with Balloon is the official title, but it's also called There's Always Hope. I think it's kind of neat. This picture of this girl releasing a balloon that's shaped like a heart, and then someone came along later and stenciled a message kind of back off and to the right. Here's what it says. It says, there is always hope. Can you see it? Zoom in on that last little picture. It says, there is always hope. I love that picture, especially when you see it in the context of this kind of like space that's like marked by like mold or dirt. It's like under a bridge. Show the full picture again. Let's get the whole context. Not a place where you'd think to look for hope, is it? And I think that's why this painting kind of strikes a chord with me. It's just like, wow, what a bold statement. What a brave thing to say. I think hope sometimes is most needed when we are feeling most desperate. So, Here's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to talk about Advent a little bit, what it is, why we do it, and what it's about. And then we're going to head to Luke chapter 2 to walk alongside a man who spent his whole life oriented around hope. And then I want to reflect for a few minutes on what it means to say that Jesus is our only sufficient source of hope. Really? Nothing else? So before we go any further, though, a few thoughts on Advent itself. So North Canton Chapel, a lot of us come from different church traditions. I know that. Um, 
Some of those traditions are casual. Some of them are a little more formal. And on the scale of like casual to formal in terms of liturgy, North Canton Chapel, we tend to kind of skew this way a little bit. We don't do a lot of what you call high church liturgy. We tend to be a little casual, neither good nor bad, right or wrong, but that's just kind of who we are. And so I thought it would be good for a few minutes, though, to talk about Advent, what it is, and why we do it the way that we do because this is a kind of time of year where some of those traditions and liturgies kind of resurface a little bit. So first things first, where did this tradition come from? You see over here, I've got a table with five candles on it. And maybe you've seen these before. Maybe you came from a church where you've done an Advent lighting or an Advent wreath like this. Maybe you have one at home. It's easy to imagine that the Advent tradition comes from like the Middle Ages, or like somewhere deep in church history, like candles in a dark season like winter, kind of they're naturally evocative of this holy moment in these like dark Gothic cathedrals, right? It's such an imaginative idea. Um, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but the origin story for Advent actually is more recent than we might imagine, more practical than we might imagine, and I think actually more charming. Here's the story. Johann Wichern. German, in case you didn't pick that up. Johann Wichern was a pastor in Hamburg, Germany in the 1830s. And as a pastor, he had a really big heart for the urban poor, especially kids. And so part of his ministry, he was, he was functionally a missionary to the urban poor, especially the children. He built a, a, a home where kids could come, they could learn to read, they could learn to write, they could learn to develop work skills to help them in the work world, all in the context of community, which was a super innovative idea at the time. This was all just born out of his passion to reach the lost in his community. And as Christmas gets closer, the kids asked Johann, they said, is Christmas here yet? Is Christmas here yet? Not hard to imagine for those of us who've had kids or know and so Wichern had an idea. He took an old wagon wheel and he made 25 holes, 25 candles in them. And he lit one every day until lighting the very last one on Christmas morning. Which this is just kind of my imagination in this story here. Part of me wants to believe that's like a really cool object lesson. Like that's really thoughtful. And I think that's probably the truth. But part of me, because I'm a parent, I wonder if he's going, Will you just stop asking me? Like, here, we're going to light them so you can see it, right? Here, look at it. Whatever the case was, his wheel idea expanded into Protestant churches in Germany as a teaching tool until about 100 years later, so about the 1930s, the Advent wreath with candles, the tradition migrated to the United States with a wave of German immigrants. And some of you may have that in your backstory. I know that's our family. And so this tradition is really only about 100 years old. But here's what I love about it. The idea of an Advent wreath, Advent candles, this progression, lighting a candle and then waiting, and lighting another one, then waiting. This is basically just a visual reminder that Advent is rooted in expectation. Like we're moving somewhere. We're going to get through something. We're headed a direction. And so whether you're kids in 1830s Germany waiting for presents or your people in 2023 North Canton waiting for a different kind of presence, there's a sense that this time of year we are waiting for something. We're headed somewhere. Hold on to that idea for a few minutes. So that's where this thing came from. Now, why do we do it the way that we do it? Now, this Advent wreath, 
candle display over here. It's five candles in them, okay? They got reduced from 25 to five. Maybe that's an exercise in German efficiency. I don't know. Anyway, you got five now. And they kind of work around the first one that we're going to light this morning is the hope candle. Hope. And we light the hope candle. It's the first one to be lit because hope is this brave thing. It was dark. And then now there's hope. Hope is the first inkling around Christmas. Hope is a brave thing. It's this small but strong statement that says, God has not abandoned us. He's still working. Jesus is on the way. And so we have hope. And so hope is the first candle to be lit. And in our display this year, it's evergreen, tying to an evergreen tree, because they don't really ever get brown. They always stay green. That hope for the Christian is eternal. Peace is the second candle. The second week of Advent reminds us that Jesus, his fundamental message was that he came to bring peace on earth. Again, like think about our world today, set against the division and destruction and despair. It is a very bold thing to say that there's only one source of peace and it's Christ alone. No other tactic works to say Christ is the Prince of Peace. That's a bold statement. So that's the second week of Advent. The third week of Advent is joy, lifting another message from the the angel's proclamation. Joy for all people. As we move toward Christmas, we get to that third candle, the wreath is over half lit. It's more bright than not. It's a reminder that joy is coming. Fourth week of Advent is the love week. That's the fourth candle to be lit. It's a reminder that all these virtues, hope and peace and joy, these first three are all gifts that come from the hand of a loving father. This is another sermon for another day, but I don't think many people in the world believe that God actually loves them. And I know some of you wrestle with that. That the God of the universe doesn't just tolerate you, but loves you. And so that's the fourth candle. The last one is kind of obvious. It's the Christ candle, and it's white. It symbolizes his purity, his holiness, and it's the center pin around whom the whole wheel turns. Without Jesus, that's just a collection of just disjointed candles, maybe a nice centerpiece for your table. But with him at the center, we're reminded that the ideas of hope and peace and joy and love only make sense when they are centered around Christ. So that's why we do what we do. Anytime we do anything liturgical here, anything traditional, I feel like it's good to explain it, just so that way we know why we do what we do. So let's head to the text this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2. You can turn there if you want to, but first I'm going to set just a little bit of context. We're actually going to go past Christmas a little bit. Mary and Joseph have been with Jesus for a little over a month now. So we're a little past Christmas chronologically. And if you're new parents in Jesus' day, the Mosaic law required you to do three things. So if you're a brand new parent, you could probably be thankful that you don't have to do all three of these things these days. The first thing, you're required to bring your baby boy into God's covenant people through circumcision. So back in Genesis, Abraham is the first one of God's people to be circumcised. This law, which is practiced for centuries, is God saying, remember where you belong. Remember you're a part of God's people. I did great things through Abraham, and I'm going to do great things through you. You're a part of my people. That's the first thing that was required, circumcision. 
Second thing new parents were required to do, they had to wait 40 days before they could go back to the temple. So we're going to get a little biological here. I promise it won't last long. But according to Jewish law, a woman is ceremonial unclean for 40 days after she gives birth. That means she's not allowed back into the temple. Now that seems really primitive to us, but I think there's God's heart under there too. Those 40 days were providing space for her body to heal from the effects of labor. And so all you need to know about that is there's about a month gap between the manger scene and where we'll be in a second in Luke 2, verse 22. 40 days for Mary to heal and to rest and just to be with Jesus, which I think is actually rather beautiful. Third thing that the Jewish law required you to do as a new parent is after 40 days, you were required to head to the temple to make an offering. It's a Thanksgiving offering. So you had to make the trip to Jerusalem. Now, this is a big deal. Heading to the temple was kind of a formal way of saying, God, we recognize that this child is from you. And as he makes his way in the world, we're asking for your blessing. So imagine this. The trip from Bethlehem, where they are, with Jesus, all the way north to Jerusalem, that's a six-mile hike. That's like heading out to Cleveland Avenue and walking up to the square in Uniontown. Anybody want to do that this afternoon? No. That's a hike anyway, on a good day. Much less if you're a brand new parent with a brand new baby. No one wants to like stash the baby in the car seat, pack up the diaper bag, walk six miles, worship, and then turn around and head home. Like that's a little crazy. The walk itself was a sacrifice. This trip shows their devotion to God. That Mary and Joseph love the Lord. These weren't like fence-riding God people. Like they were in They wanted to obey him. This trip also shows their poverty, though. One more piece of background, then we're going to get to the text. The book of Leviticus talks about the kind of offering that you were supposed to bring after you have a baby. Here's what it says. And when the days of her purifying are completed, remember, those 40 days, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb. That's an interesting image a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Skip down to verse eight. And if she can't afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons. So yet you caught the mention of the two turtle doves and that's where that comes from in that song. But here's what I love about this. Joseph and Mary, as we're gonna see in a moment, bring two turtle doves. They bring two pigeons. Just think about this. Joseph and Mary, too poor to afford a lamb, walk into the temple holding the lamb. And that's not just imaginative reading. That's not just creative exegesis of scripture. That's actually like what God wants us to see in this Luke narrative. So with that said, let's get to Luke chapter two, verse 22. Here we go. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, we just talked about that, they brought him, that is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. So that's 
what they're bringing. This is Luke giving his readers a little clue about what's going on. Now, Luke wrote his gospel for a man named Theophilus. What a great name, Theophilus. It literally means God lover. But that's a Greek name. Theophilus isn't Jewish. Theophilus probably doesn't know a ton about the Old Testament. Theophilus is a Greek, wealthy, probably God-fearing man who had heard a little bit about this Jesus of Nazareth and wants to pay Luke, who is a doctor by trade, so he's really good with research and details. He wants to pay him to write a book about this Jesus person so that Theophilus can have a clear understanding about who he is. That book is the Gospel of Luke. And so Theophilus... He's going, tell me more about this. And so Luke gives him all these details. So now that they're at the temple, Mary and Joseph meet a very intriguing, fairly obscure character. So let's pick things up in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. What a powerful phrase. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not taste death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So what do we know about this guy? Just three things. First off, he's righteous and devout. Simeon wasn't famous. Luke would have told us if he was. Simeon wasn't rich. Again, Luke probably would have told us that. Instead, we get righteous and devout. Two characteristics that Luke might be seeing forming in his reader and his patron Theophilus' mind. Instead of credentials, we get character. Enough to say that God is less concerned with your reputation and your resume and more about your identity and your integrity. Second thing we know about Simeon is that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. What a curious phrase, especially given our world events right now. That word deserves a fresh look. Consolation of Israel, what does that mean? Here's the story. All throughout the Old Testament, starting way back in the garden, all through David's kingdom, and then all through the time of the prophets, there's this promise that God will one day work through his people in such a way to bring about a Messiah, a promised one, who will bless all people. And this is this promise that's been cooking for thousands of years in the slow cooker on the counter of God's sovereignty. Something that they've known is coming, but they haven't experienced it yet. Now here's the thing. The last Old Testament prophet was a guy named Malachi. That happened, Malachi wrote his book, prophesied and preached and spoke about this coming Messiah 400 years before Jesus. So there's this 400 year gap of silence from God. 400 years where there's nothing. It's like God just ghosted his people. Now the Romans have moved in. They've set up shop. Things are not moving in the right direction. And there's this intensifying question kind of birding like, well, when is God gonna move? When's God gonna do what he said he was gonna do? Didn't he promise Is all those prophets and David and all those Psalms and all that stuff that we used to read about and memorize in Hebrew school, is all that just empty fluff and emotion? Maybe the deeper questions are, does God still keep his promises or should we look for someone else? Is God still worthy of our hope? It's a question that our world is still asking, by the way. 
So now in the throes of all that, here's Simeon. He's an old man. He hangs around the temple a lot. He's like the coffee shop regular that everybody recognizes, but nobody really knows how to approach. But by showing up, Simeon's life is saying something. He's saying, I believe God has not given up on us yet. I am here in the confident expectation that he's going to do what he said he was going to do. Third thing Luke tells us, and then we'll move on. He says, the Holy Spirit was upon him. Simeon is actually the sixth person in Luke's gospel to be described like this. Here's why Luke mentions this. Luke wants Theophilus, his reader, and us, by proxy, to know that after 400 years of silence, the gap from Malachi to now, God is moving again. So whatever is about to happen on the other side of this verse is something that God did. This is not just some random smattering of events. The Holy Spirit seems to be stirring the waters in a way that he hasn't for centuries. So what happens? Luke continues. Take a look in verse 27. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. Stop right there. This first phrase is really important. We'll go on, but take a look at this. We know Simeon's routine. Day after day, he goes to the temple. He gets up and he heads in and he's waiting the expectation of Messiah. But this day, there's something different. He came in the spirit in the temple. What does that mean? Is that just like just emotions? Like, was he just having like hallucinations? No. I take it to mean that this is something different. Simeon knew that this day felt a little bit differently. I take this to mean that he had some kind of like a Holy Spirit alarm clock go off. Where his head popped off the pillow that morning, and he goes, wait a second. Wait, God, are you saying? Because I hope, is this the day, God? So What happens? He heads to the temple in the spirit. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. How does he describe him? A light of revelation to the Gentiles and a glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. A few quick thoughts. Verse 29, this is him going, God, like you've kept me here. Like I've lived my life in home, or I've lived my life in hope, but now I'm good to go home. I'm saying bye to the world. Why? Verse 30, when he says this, he says, because my eyes have seen your salvation. Strong statement, because let's remember, he's just holding a baby. A baby that hasn't even done anything yet. It's a good reminder, though, that God's salvation is a person, and that person's name is Jesus. And in seeing Christ, Simeon sees everything that God has provided pertaining to salvation. Well, who gets this salvation, Simeon? Who's in? Verse 31, that you've prepared in the presence of all people, 
Jesus' coming is not just for one people group, but it will spread everywhere. What's the point? God's bride is a multicolored, multi-ethnic, multilingual bride. It's like we were talking about this last fall, that racial superiority has no place with God because racial superiority reduces Jesus' work. And that carries on into how Simeon closes out this spontaneous prayer in verse 32 when he says, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people Israel. By putting Gentiles, those of us who are not ethnically Jewish, and Jewish people on the same platform, this holy, hope-filled, Christ-exalting Jewish man recovers something that God's people by this time had forgotten That Israel is not the fulfillment of God's revelation, but the means through which that fulfillment will come. And here he is, he's this six-week-old baby. This is it. It's all been leading to that. I don't know if you get this, but um, I get the sense in verse 27 that like when Mary and Joseph walk in the temple like with their turtle doves and they're ready to make the sacrifice and do the thing, that Simeon just kind of like interrupts the whole thing. Like he's this old guy who hangs around the temple. They probably don't know who he is. Remember, they're new in town. They may have heard about the guy that hangs around the temple. He's this holy guy, righteous, devout, yada, yada, yada. Simeon's not famous. He's not a priest or anything. He doesn't work there. They walk in the temple with their brand new baby. Simeon walks up and he goes, can I hold him? And if you're a new mom, I watched Mandy do this three times. If you're a new mom, there's no weirder question than, can I hold your baby? And Mary looks at Joseph. Joseph looks at Mary. I don't know what to do. He seems okay. Like, all right, I guess. And then this old man holding your firstborn son breaks out into spontaneous worship poetry. He says that your baby is going to bring salvation to all people and glory for God's people. He says that this baby's birth has been prepared so that all could see God's salvation. And then he says, great, now I can go die. That must have been more than a little disorienting. And so no wonder in verse 33 they say, and his father and mother marveled about what was said. Like, hang on, we're doing what now? But then Simeon's face shifts. He's not looking up anymore. His wrinkles and his smile lines that were lit by sunlight, they drop. And he looks at Joseph and he looks at Mary and his face falls. And his voice lowers. Maybe to just like a whisper. And his eyes, like seeing a cloud in the distance, wince a little bit. And here's what he says. Simeon blessed them. And he said to Mary, his mother, behold, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now that is a very strange blessing. 
Imagine getting that birth announcement in the mail. Like, baby's here, everything's great. Height, weight, time of birth, mom and baby are doing fine. Speaking of baby, he's going to cause massive division among God's people because God appointed him to reveal the dark nature of human hearts. Like, Doesn't really make for a great Christmas card. Like, give me courier and hives and like Santa Claus and chestnuts roasting and all that stuff. Instead, we get this child will cause the fall and rising of many. What's Simeon getting at? What's he saying? Probably more important, why is he saying it? How does that little dark detail help his spiritually curious but for now still secular patron Theophilus get a clear picture of Christ? Here's his point. Jesus is not just a baby to be admired. He is a savior to worship. And that's where we find our hope. Simeon's here saying, Mary... Your baby has a pre- is precious because your baby has a purpose. This baby is gonna comfort some. He's gonna provoke others. He's gonna be the hope bringer for those who need it, but you've gotta get this. He's also going to be a profound offense. People will reject him, and in their rejection of him, their sin and condemnation will be made all the greater. Put simply, there will be no neutrality with this child. So thanks for letting me hold him. Well, okay, yeah, but like who's going to be offended about a baby? Offended? What's all this about, Simeon? Here's what we need to see. The manger is precious because the cross is necessary. The manger is precious. If you want the theological angle, the incarnation is precious Why? Because the cross is necessary. Why? Because propitiation is necessary. Without the cross, we're just a bunch of people gathering around a baby. Simply, the cross, or the cradle points to the cross. Well, how is that offensive? Great question, glad you asked. The cross suggests three very, very offensive ideas, and here they are. Number one, the cross suggests that I am a sinner, and that is offensive. The cross suggests that I need a savior, and that is offensive. And the cross suggests that Jesus is only the, the only one, and that is offensive. The first offends my authority. Sinner? Come on, really? I haven't done anything that bad. No, yeah, yeah, you have. I need a savior? That offends my sense of ability. Even if I was a sinner, I could probably straighten life out on my own. No, 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 you can't. You've tried, and you're terrible at it, and so am I. You need a savior. The third suggestion, the fact that Jesus is the only all-sufficient savior, that is offensive because of its exclusivity. If Jesus is the only way, then all the other ways are wrong. Surely that's not what Jesus was born to say. Yeah, yeah, it was. That's exactly what he's saying. The manger is precious because the cross is necessary and maybe it's because he's standing next to her or maybe it's because old man Simeon knows what it's like to lose a son. We don't know for sure. But Simeon's words in verse 35, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Those are said in the shadow of the cross like Mary, this is really gonna hurt because you're gonna have to see something in 33 years that you're not ready to see. It's a pretty common idea today that, um, that Jesus is, is someone to be admired. 
like on a level of like Gandhi or Martin Luther King. Like he's a good guy. He's a social revolutionary who wanted good things for his world. People like Jesus, and that's the problem. People just like him. But as far as him being God, the only source of salvation, and the someone around whom my life must now be oriented, we don't like going that far. But that's the sentiment that Simeon is speaking against here. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Just listen to this. C.S. Lewis writes, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing that we must not say. Here's why. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to him with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Gosh, That's the spirit of Simeon's words here. There is no neutrality with Jesus. What's he mean? Jesus is not just a baby to be admired. He is a savior to be worshiped. How you respond to the offensive message of Christ determines everything. And so if I'm Luke writing to Theophilus, here's the gospel, dude. Jesus wasn't born so that we could be half hopeful. Jesus wasn't born so that we could be sort of saved. Jesus was born to completely deliver anyone who trusts in him from the penalty of sin. Do you want forgiveness? Here's who it is. God the Father sent God the Son to his people so that through his people, all people might have hope. And then if you look at the text, the scene just stops. Those words just kind of hang in the air. We don't see Simeon in the Gospels after this, and so we're left to conclude that he probably does die after this scene. He probably does go home to meet the Lord. All we have is this image of this hope-filled man with these words hanging in the stillness of the temple. Nice scene, quaint imagery. What do we make of this thing? Let's leave Simeon on the stage for a minute and ask, what does this have to do with 2023 North Canton? When we spoke about Advent just a few minutes ago, I said that hope is a brave thing. It's the first candle to be lit against the darkness. I suggest it's actually the hardest because it's easy to remain in hopelessness and despair. Hope is a brave thing. Here's something I know about every one of us because it's true of me. And it's just how we're created. You just can't get around this. Everybody is waiting for something. Every one of us is waiting for something. You can't get around that. We're all waiting for something. We want something that's not here yet. Some of us are waiting for tangible things. Maybe you're waiting for a job to materialize. You've put your resume out there. You've interviewed. You've interviewed. Like you've gotten one call back, a second call back. You're almost there, but it hasn't happened yet. And there's always hope, right? Maybe you're waiting for the prodigal to come back, especially this time of year. Check your phone, hoping to see a text. You imagine coming home to find a familiar car back in the driveway. They haven't come back yet, but 
there's always hope, right? Maybe you're waiting for some kind of relational reconciliation. You're waiting for a word to be spoken. And you don't know what the word is, but you know it as soon as you hear it. And you haven't heard it yet, but there's always hope, right? Maybe you're waiting for more intangible things. Maybe you're waiting for a place to belong. You want acceptance, like a place where you can actually be heard and known and seen for who you are. Maybe you're waiting for an answer for something that happened in the last year or decade. Like, why did that happen? What was God doing? Maybe you're waiting for rest, like you've just been pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing so hard and you're so tired. Everyone is waiting for something. The other night, um, Mandy and I were sitting in, in the office at home, and uh, she was sitting in the chair at the desk, and I was sitting in my recliner. It's my Sunday afternoon nap recliner, like my favorite spot in the universe. And we were just talking about just like the last almost 20 years of marriage and life and ministry and parenting and like our own walks with the Lord. And um, well, I was talking, she was listening. So no, I was emoting and she was trying to console me is really what it was. And we were talking about the places in our life where we're still seeing like brokenness show up and we still want, like we want God's restoration in those places. Like just little places in our marriage that like we still sometimes get sideways. Places in our parenting where like I'm just more impatient than I wanna be. Like places in just our own personal walks with the Lord where we see brokenness. We see things where we're like, oh, come on. Is today the day? Like is, when's God gonna like iron that wrinkle out? <laughs> There's always hope, Right? So here's where I want to go. Imagine Simeon. Day after day, he walks in the temple. He knows the road from memory. He could probably walk it blindfolded. Along the way, maybe he hears voices like, where are you going, old man? I'm going to see Messiah. Why? Because he told me. God told me I'd see him. I'll see him. Entering the temple, the familiar question rises in his imagination, like, ah, oh, is he here? Is today the day? He looks around, he sees a few other worshipers, temple attendants, the usual hustle, the same tired conversation, same humdrum, nothing out of the ordinary today. He'll pray, maybe he'll talk with a priest, talk with a friend, and then he'll head out going, eh, maybe tomorrow. Lifetime of maybe tomorrow's. The road home always seems longer to Simeon. It's slower, it's heavier, he's got more on his mind. The sand in the street shifts under his sandals and jogs his mind. More than sand on the seashore, God, huh? I remember that one. Huh. Then he gets close to home and he looks up. He sees the stars in the sky. He goes, more than stars in the sky, huh, God? No, I remember that one too. Well, maybe tomorrow. Because those words are 1,500 years old at this point. Old promises get forgotten. He finds his home, he closes the door behind him and he drifts off to sleep, empty but still somehow hopeful. Next day, he finds the guts to get up and do it again and then one day, God breaks through. <laughs> it would be very disingenuous of me to stand here this morning and say, hey, all that stuff that you're hoping for, just sit tight, it'll happen. I can't say that. Because life isn't that way. The loose ends of life don't always get tied up, especially not in the timing that we want. But what I can tell you with confidence is that the greatest need that you have is a savior. 
And he is so eager for you. What I can tell you with confidence is that everything that Simeon waited for can still be yours. You want forgiveness from sin? You want freedom from shame? God says, good, I got that for you because I know your soul needs that. His name is Jesus. What Simeon says in verse 30 when he says, my eyes have seen your salvation, that is a very powerful statement. All Simeon sees standing there is a six-week-old baby who for all we know could be sleeping at the time and his poor but faithful mom and dad. But in five minutes with Jesus, who knows? Simeon's able to say, this is it, God. This is him. This is it. I'm good now. This is enough. I've waited, I've waited, I've waited, and I know he's it. And so God, you can just take me home. Here's the gospel according to Simeon. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Jesus is him. Super simple, super powerful. So let's get back to this Advent wreath real quick. Band, you guys can come on back out. We're going to sing a song about our hope. As you think about this wreath, and I know this may be a little like corny, maybe a little kitschy, maybe a little preachy, but sometimes I like corny and kitschy, so I'm okay with that. If your life was an Advent wreath, what is at the center? Who is at the center? There's a very deliberate posture here that Christ is at the center. He's not the back, he's not the front, he's at the center. Everything in this time of year revolves around him. It's a reminder that your life doesn't make any sense with you at the center of it. Your life only makes sense with Christ at the center of it. Another way of asking this question is, how big a deal is Jesus to you? Some of us, you've been hopeless for a long time and you don't know why. My question is, have you ever repented of your sin and said, you know what, Christ, I just want you. I'm tired of trying to figure this thing out on my own. You're not going to have hope without Christ, ever. Some of you, like, we're, we're hopeless. We battle for hope. We're fighting for it. And my word for you is keep your eyes on Christ. Don't give up. Because you know what? Just like Simeon waited for him for centuries, we're still waiting for him to come back a second time. And it's coming. Could be today. <laughs> How's your hope? Some of you are feeling really hopeful today. You're feeling really good. You're on like the top of the wave. And my word for you is please look for those that are down. Please look for those that are hopeless this Christmas season, that are feeling down and dejected. And give them the gospel truth that there is a God who loves them deeply and sent his son to die for them so that they don't have to have a hopeless life or a Christless eternity. That's your job. Let me pray. Oh, Lord, you're sovereign over time. You're sovereign over your world. You're sovereign over our lives. And at the fullness of time, you sent your son to be born so that we could have hope and we wouldn't have to wonder anymore. God, help us to be missionaries of hope in this world. Open our eyes and open our hearts to the things that are around us, the people in our lives that need you. And Lord, we'll step in. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his manger and thank you for his cross. And it's in his name we pray, amen.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.